listening to the Sly Dog Music Cast. Now here's your host, the Sly Dog. Hello and welcome to the Sly Dog Music Cast. I'm your host, the Sly Dog, and today joining me, the lead singer of the band Helix, the mighty Brian Vollmer. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. I'm glad we could finally set this up. Uh, first off, congrats on the new record, uh, Eat, Sleep, Rock. Uh, this thing is incre- incredible. Uh, it's a compilation of songs from your post-DMI years. Like, What made you want to put this thing together? Well, start with vinyl. Uh, lately, in the last couple of years, vinyl has outpaced uh, CDs. So, that's my wife there, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, vinyl's outpaced um, CDs. And so, I thought I'd release a best of uh, Helix album from the Capital EMI years onward. Uh, believe it or not, even when we were with Capital all those years, uh, they never released a vinyl best of album until uh capital emi got bought up by universal which released the icon series which was kind of a best of the capital years but this is uh from then on it it, it doesn't have all the albums on it but uh a song or two from every album since then uh there's two songs from half live for instance there's uh another song from my solo album released around the year 2000 um, Cyberspace Girl was on the uh, uh, Helix album that came out in 1996, I believe, called, uh, it was a 2000, 2006, sorry, uh, that was called The um, uh, 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 Power of Rock and Roll. So, so there's stuff from Vagabond Bones and uh, Bastard of the Blues in there as well, plus a couple new tracks. Awesome. Awesome, yeah, it's a great listen all the way through it. To me, it plays almost like a, like a new studio record in a way. It's been very refreshing like I, i'm we're at the end of the year and i'm working on my top 10 for 2020 and i don't usually put compilation albums on there but this one man this one it just flows so well i'm, I'm tempted to put it on the list it's a great listen uh well, the thing about felix now is that you know we've gone back to a smaller audience and uh the music industry is very fractured and um the thing that pulls us together is, is touring so i don't know what's going to happen now that uh, the coronavirus has basically shut everything down um but we sell, you know, I sell to a very uh, uh, smaller audience than we did years ago, but it's now it's worldwide. So people are in this music, they have to have everything about it. So we've been putting out quality music. And I think, you know, that's the uh, underlying word there. You have, have to still put out quality material and uh, people will buy it and they will search it out, even though we have no support of uh, traditional radio. Uh, Internet radio, on the other hand, has been very supportive of this band because we've gone back to the um, basics that we were taught as uh, entertainers uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s by our manager, Bill Seidman. That is to go out there, do station IDs. Uh, back in the day, we used to, I remember, stand in front of that payphone with quarters and just <laughs> keep up and, and, and phone the program directors. I heard a story one time where uh, Gilmour of Triumph had memorized every program director, music director of every uh, radio station in the United States. And I don't know if that was really true, but uh, it kind of summed up what we were about. We really did the uh, legwork behind marketing the album. We didn't depend on the record company. We, we went out there and did it ourselves. So nowadays, uh, we started off this uh, album by doing 140 station IDs, uh, which were set up by Tom Mathers of Paris Records, which is our 
uh, label actually for the CDs in the United States and Europe. Okay. And Tom's got a background in this music, and he uh, distributes his selected hits, which is really the old uh, uh, Sam Phillips label, which was Sun Records. So we got a good uh, a genealogy of uh, people selling our records. And uh, we go out there and do the legwork, and we do the station IDs, we do the interviews, and uh, we take time to do that. Tom uh, laments to me that uh, a lot of the young bands he has uh, won't do that, or they make a, uh, a limp-hearted uh, uh, attempt to do it. So, you know, that's where we got the edge. We can outwork them. That's that's very true, and that's and you bring up a great point. I've noticed that you know in learning about the band Helix, I'll, I'll, I'm a little younger. Um, I wasn't there in the '80s, you know, when Helix, you know, was starting out and like you know, kind of like at you know on the MI. You were only a sperm of an idea. Exactly, that's exactly the case. But I could tell, even like reading about you guys, you guys were grinding it out, and you make that clear in like the story of Helix, which kicks off this new new album. You talk about like all the touring, like you guys started in '74. So clearly, like, you know, you guys really took this seriously and ground it out until you got, you know, to, you did two independent albums and then you got to EMI. So clearly you guys put in the work. And even after EMI, you guys kept, you know, producing quality stuff. You never, you know, let up. So kudos well, to you for that. We've always been a leader in marketing in ourselves, even back in the 70s. We started off, uh, back then, the, uh, the rigmarole for, for being a, in a touring band uh, you'd start at an agency and you'd be a cover band. You played cover material and they put you up to in, in Northern Ontario, some of the um, roughest bars you could imagine. We would get uh, requests sent to us, taped to ashtrays, and they go whizzing by our head. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember one time one came and nearly missed me and hit the drum set and I picked it up and I said, get off the fucking stage of your dead meat. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, so uh, we went through the birth of fire in Northern Ontario, and a lot of guys quit in the early days of the band. And uh, and then once we could do well there, and and in Southern Ontario, they'd send you out to the East Coast, and it was the same miserable living conditions and and uh, uh, environment, uh, all except for Fredericton for us, where we were uh, rock stars. And then they finally sent us out to Western Canada, and it was Nirvana. Uh, we had beautiful rooms. We actually had bathrooms in our rooms, which we didn't have to share with the winos down the hall. <laughs> and, uh, color TV. Like back then, like, you know, you take TV for granted now when you go to a hotel. Back then, we didn't have TVs. Or if there was a TV there, it didn't work. Um, and that's the type of places we were in. So all we had to do all day long was do music because there was nothing else to uh, capture our attention. And then in 1983, we got signed to Capitol Records, and uh, they uh, sent us overseas with Kiss. And uh, they were, you know, up until 1989, we were at Capitol EMI, and then uh, they dropped us basically. And uh, then we were licensed by EMI in Canada, uh, Grudge Records in the United States, and GWR in Europe. Next, up, we were on Aquarius with uh, It's Business Doing Pleasure. And then from there on in, I just had my own indie albums and I licensed them after I was done recording. And because when you got the record company giving you money to record and you're signing a record company, think about it. So even the record company is never going to walk into that recording studio and go, yeah, everything is perfect. 
because if they did that, what would be the reason for them being there? So a lot of wasted money when you're with a big record company. Uh, the other side of the coin with the big record company is that uh, they have the bucks to market the band, uh, to, you know, pay for things. And um, that's the flip side of the coin. But we've been uh, recording our own albums for many years now, and uh, that gives us total quality control. And uh, then we license them and uh, try to get them out there. We find Paris Rockers to be great because they understand the nature of this uh, genre of music and they know how to market it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It seems like they're, they're, the, they're a good label for like your, you know, your type of band. So I agree with you there. Um, and speaking of EMI, uh, we've been alluding to this story of Helix song a few times now. Uh, so before, uh, before we talk about the story of Helix in that song, uh, or interlude or whatever we, you'd like to call it on the album, you called EMI every mistake imaginable. And I know you kind of, you, you said basically like, you know, you put in a lot of work, you know, marketing yourselves and promoting yourselves. Do you feel like they didn't put in the legwork for you guys at the time or was it something else? Uh, would you have been better off staying independent in the 80s? You know, what are your, what are your, were your thoughts, you know, saying that essentially? Well, first off, I got that every mistake imaginable from somebody at the record company the first time I went to Europe. So don't blame me. <laughs> That's the first thing. Secondly, it was a joke. And thirdly, like anything else, you know, there's good and bad. There's great people at the company. And at, at the same time, you know, those sometimes great people make big decisions and they make things that aren't right. But that's just the way it goes. It was more or less a joke in the song. But I'll give you an example of what I mean. When we re went to record the Wild on the Street album, we were at Phase One Studios in uh, Toronto and... Uh, Dean Cameron, the president of Capitol Records, decided that he was going to bring in Mike Stone, who was a, at that time one of the hugest, the biggest producers in the world. So he flew Mike Stone over and, um, you know, they took him to the studio and, and uh, we did three songs. One of them was Dream On, Nazareth song. And uh, we had the meeting with Dean Cameron after they all recorded the president of Capitol Records. And we're in the office and Dean goes, oh, geez, you did what? I'm sorry, but you did a shitty job singing that song. You guys sing that song over, you know, it's, I don't know what you were thinking of when you did this song. You really fucked it up. <clears throat> so anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, we go to uh, Europe because Mike still wanted to go back and finish recording at the Man Richard Branson's The Manor Studio out in Kennington, or uh, around Oxford. So we go out there, and every day I take a crack at this song. It was getting worse and worse, not better and better. And one day Mike, Stone was getting severely pissed off that we were doing this song so many times because he didn't really see anything wrong with it. So he said, listen, fuck the record company. He said, uh, he said I'm just going to do a little bit of a different mix and we'll send it in. They'll think that you did a new vocal and everything will be happy. Everybody be happy. I'll make bets on it. Sure enough, he's a little bit of a different mix. Sends it back over to Dean Cameron, Capital Records in Toronto. By this time, we spent about $25,000 on the song. <laughs> Dean goes, oh yeah, this is this is this is great. This is hundred hundred times better than the last one. This is great, and so that's the story of how record companies can waste your money. Yeah, laugh. A lot of takes just to end up using the original. Uh, it's interesting you bring up Wild in the Streets. There was something. Sorry. Can I Jack there? You know, but on the other hand, music is such an emotional thing, right? And, and you know, you get into sort of things. I don't really blame people 
uh, for things that happen like that because because of that uh, reason. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Uh, no worries. Uh, I, I was glad you brought up Wild in the Streets because there was something I actually wanted to ask you about that album uh, that I found interesting. Like I'm I'm very much a rock historian. I like to find out like you know the origins of certain songs, and I've always been aware that uh, there was a Def Leppard song called "She's Too Tough" that was recorded by a band called Helix. Um, and it was record. You guys recorded before Def Leppard. How did that come about? Well, we weren't the most prolific bunch. I think some of it was from the immense pressure we always got. Like you know, once once you got on a record company, we've got a hit. Record companies are animals, and managers are such that they all you know, they want you to go write another hit. Hits are great. Hits get you money. Hits get you tours. Hits get you everything, right? Right. But it became a forced thing for us. Whereas heavy metal law was very easy. We weren't taking a radio, a radio airplay song. Suddenly we were being pressured by people to write what they thought were radio hits. And, uh, I always think that's a mistake with artists. You should just let them write. And, um, uh, so we were short the song for the album and Dean Cameron once again, pulled a favor with, um, I think it was either Dean Cameron or Mike Stone pulled a favor and they got the song, which had never been released, uh, written by uh, Joe Elliott. And uh, they said we could do it. So we did the song. I called it She's Too High because it was so goddamn high I could barely sing it. We had to do like a line at a time, for Christ's sakes. Anyway, um, we did this song, and it turned out really good. Mike Stone produced it. but um, And it was a great song, but uh, we never, ever did it live because I couldn't sing a damn thing. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Uh, in later years, uh, you know, Joe sang it and he did a great job. So uh, that's how that song came out. They almost uh, pulled the song on us from the, at the last minute after we spent about $20,000 recording it, recording it. And they had to go through negotiations and peace talks and, uh, you know, I'll kiss your butt, you kiss my butt for I don't know how many days to uh, get the song eventually uh, uh, re-released to us. It did turn out great, though. I think it's a, it has a great spot on that record, too. So, yeah, I, I really dig your guys' version of that. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I've always thought it sounds, like, incredibly, like, like it's a, it's, it, it's a, it's a lung buster. It's high. Woof yeah. It is. It's, uh, you know, Joe's got a very, very high tenor voice. He didn't say anything low that I know of. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a, 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 you know, I can sing down to a, a a low G or F below a middle C, which is basically essentially a bass territory. Oh, wow. So when I get up, when I get up around, a, I don't know, a high A or C, you know, or a D, I think some of that stuff was, then, you know, you're really up there. It's hard, hard find it hard to sing those notes. <clears throat> Let's go back to uh, the Eat Sleep Rock album for a second. Uh, I've mentioned the story of Helix a few times now. I think it's a really cool way to kick off the record. It's like a, like a, like a movie for the mind in a way, and you mentioned in the booklet that that's how you've been opening your acoustic shows. Uh, how did that come together? Like, did you, were you guys like, wouldn't it be great if like, you know, we could just do like an audio movie? Uh, how did that come about? Well, we were working on the acoustic show after the release of uh, Smash Hits Unplugged, which is actually on Capitol here in Canada, hmm. which is our acoustic album, and we wanted to put together an acoustic show. Um, I was listening at the same time to some of the old tapes we did, specifically the 
live at the Elma Combo tape we did for Chum Chum Radio back in I think 1980. I'll say 1980, and uh, we had a lot of raps back in the show back then when we used to work in the bars, and they were they were naturally evolving type of things. They started off as a short rap, and they just kind of grew and grew. And you know, you're on stage every night, and people just started adding sound effects, and they they growed like uh, we had a. a uh, a rap for a song called The Helix Boogie. And then we had another rap for uh, uh, a song called Crazy Women, which is on the first Helix album. When I listen to those raps, I, that's a great idea. Maybe I'll start out the uh, acoustic show like that because the acoustic show is much more uh, of a dramatic type of show, much more of a theater type of show. At least that's the way we're, we're going to make it. Uh, we're going to have like a, an actual set built and... Uh, I'd have like the front of a bus and, and stuff like that to make the show interesting. I think that's the way we're going to get actually get back into uh, performances over the next couple of years because I find it hard to foresee great big 20,000 seat concerts or even 3,000 seat concerts, whatever. Anyway, I'm getting off track here. That's how the idea for the thing came about. And then I just started to put it together down in. Uh, uh, Florida, where we stay for my my wife and I stay for the winters, and uh, then we recorded it eventually for this album because uh, Caleb was leaving the band. I thought it was an end of an era for us. Caleb been in the band for over ten years, and uh, now we got Gary Borden back in the band, and uh, that's how it came about. Daryl did a great work of recording the song up at his studio uh, in St. Catharines, and. Um, uh, you know, he's actually probably a writer in that song. Awesome. Yeah, I lo- like I said, it's a great way to kick off the record. It's got a lot of great theater of the mind and even some great one-liners. Like, I can't help, like, I'll be walking through around sometimes now, and I can't but help say to myself, Peter Pan getaway boots. Like, that phrase is just stuck with me now ever since hearing that little track, so very well, good. Well, that, that actually came from the, the rap we have for the Helix Boogie, and anybody that followed us way back in those... Uh, days and there are still a lot of those people around uh knows that we used to have that in a rap for the helix boogie and uh, what would happen was paul and i would come up to the front of the stage and he used to wear these like wrestling boots <laughs> and uh he put it up on the front monitor and i go uh ladies and gentlemen uh, you're not able to do this song unless you have the official nfl approved nhl approved nbl approved peter pan getaway boots <laughs> and, roll and stuff like that right so that's where I stole that from uh, a rap we did way back uh, in the late 70s. Very cool. Um, there's another song on this album I wanted to ask you about specifically. It was a single first, I believe. It was uh, It's Gene Simmons Says Rock and Roll is Dead. Um, I love the spirit of the song because that's something I very much believe. You know, As long as there's someone out there that you know believes in this music, it's never truly gone. I mean, it may not you know be like it was in the 80s, but it's still there and it's still alive and it's still breathing. Uh Talk a bit about that one and did, you know, did you ever get a response, you know, from Gene Simmons himself? Like, did you ever like hear anything like either from him or through the grapevine? I didn't get any response from Gene Simmons, but I'm sure he heard it because uh, I believe his son had it on his uh, website. And uh, people I'm associated with, like Spiro Papadatis. Yeah. Uh, he's involved with the band, so I'm not sure he passed along. But uh, to me, the song is a personal statement because i'm still making music nowadays and it has nothing to do with money it has to do with the fact that i'm creating music i'm doing what i've always wanted to do and yes i do make money at it but 
<clears throat> my primary reason is to write songs and perform songs. And uh, like uh, when you phoned, I was just working on a song. And uh, there is no money in it nowadays. It's more of a vanity project than anything else. But there are still artists out there that do it for the love of it. And uh, a good songwriter doesn't uh, die. And you never know where um, your song is going to end up. It could end up in a TV commercial and become famous or just for some reason take off in the Internet or end up on a movie soundtrack. And uh, nowadays I focus on our core audience, uh, which is worldwide once again. And... um, when I when I market an album, that's what I'm thinking of. And if I can expand that audience, that's great. Great. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, so up next, uh, I, I got two more questions for you. First off, uh, we, I, w- I would be remiss if I did not, you know, ask about, you know, like quarantine, uh, COVID. It's all it's been it's been rough on everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you had plans this year that kind of got nixed. Uh, What's your what's your take? I've, I've you know I hear some people are more optimistic about the future, like like we'll adapt, we'll figure this out. Some people are like yeah, it's going to be till like twenty twenty two till we see another show. Like what's your take? Like do you are you feeling optimistic about the future, or are you just kind of taking it a day at the time? Well, I'm not optimistic that the live gigs are going to come back anytime soon. Um, but I'm always optimistic about the future. I was lucky that I did divested my income in, in real estate to a certain extent. So I'll be okay. Uh, and, uh, the music that I'm doing right now seems to be making money. Every time I, I put a world premiere of a video out there, uh, you know, I do, uh, uh, about enough merchandise to cover the cost of the video. So that's a good thing that keeps us in the public sign that keeps us going. Um, I always just work as hard as I can and then uh, do the best I can and try to do a good job. And uh, once I do that, I turn it over into uh, the hands of God. And uh, usually it all just works out for me. And so I stay optimistic. It's funny. It's funny you bring it up because uh, I uh, was taught by Edward Johnson. That's who was my voice teacher. And Edward Johnson was the youngest member of the New York Metropolitan Opera. He sang at all three uh, U.S. opera houses, including Carnegie Hall. But Ed Johns was my mentor, and Ed was the tenor soloist for Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. Hmm. And every Sunday, he would have to sit through the, the service by Norman Vincent Peale, and through Norman Vincent Peale, Edward Johnson became a positive thinker, and through Edward Johnson, I became a positive thinker, and it changed my life. And so... I try to keep myself positive, even in times like this. I've been terribly, terribly busy. And uh, like I said, uh, um, you know, things all work out. I'll tell you a little story about that. Ed Johnson always told me, don't worry about money. When you need money, money will fall out of the sky. And he must have said that a thousand times to me. And I was worried about money when I first got my house with my wife. We lived from week to week. And the music business was pretty lean for Helix during the 90s. It was all I could do to keep the band going. But Ed would keep saying, don't worry about money. You need money, fall out of the sky. And then around, oh, I'd say about 2007, Ed got sick with a stroke and then he died. I was with him when he died. And 
about a year later, I was working on the Helix Christmas album, a heavy mental Christmas, and I had paid for the album, and I was about a couple grand short. I needed 2000 bucks, and I came home, and uh, it was middle of August when we were doing the album, and I walked in through the front door, I grabbed the mail, and I sat down at the front table in uh, my kitchen and started opening up my mail, and Linda was there, my wife, with me, and the first letter I opened was a thank you card from Ed's wife, uh, Barb, and it read, uh, or, anyway, I, sorry, I picked up the mail, getting ahead of myself with the story, I told Linda, I said, look, I, I need uh, at least $2,000 to finish off this album, so I'm going to have to go to my parents, I said, geez, what a drag, anyway, I started opening up the mail, and there's this thank you card from Eb's widow, and she says, uh, I'd really like to thank you for everything you did for Ed. He would have been so uh, happy that you helped him out, you know, in the last couple of weeks that he was alive. And that's why I'm sure he would have wanted you to have uh, this check for $2,000. Wow. And when I got, when I read that, the hair stood up in my arms and I looked at Linda and she looked at me and we just, we were both speechless. And I kept thinking about when you need money, money will fall out of the sky. And there, you know, Ed was dead. And suddenly I got $2,000. So I've always kept that attitude. So am I positive? Hell yeah! I love it. I love it. That's such a beautiful story, man. Thank you for sharing that. That's incredible. That's, yeah, that's, it is an incredible story. It's beautiful. And it's an incredible person. I hope one of my projects, if I can in the years to come, is I like to uh, write a uh, uh, kind of a story about Ed because he had an amazing uh, life story. Awesome. Yeah, he sounds like a great guy. So I would definitely, you know, whatever it, medium it comes out in book, movie, whatever, I would, I will definitely be on the lookout for that. So, yeah, hey. great story, man. Thank you for sharing that. So to kind of bring this all home, uh, talk about the future of Helix and Brian Vollmer for a second. Um, you mentioned you're working on new music, and we've talked via email. You are working on a music video soon for the Tequila song. Uh, what's what? What you got in the in the cards? A new record for Helix, a new solo record. You know what's what you what you percolating on? Well, a little bit of both. We're working a new studio album. It's uh, about half deep, about five songs deep. Um, and I'm also going to take the Business Doing Pleasure album that we released in 1993, and I'm going to release that as a Volmer album. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the best songs from that album. Uh, tug of War, That Day's Gonna Come, Look Me Straight in the Heart, uh, Maybe Sleeping in the Doghouse Again. I don't have to re revisit that album. I'm going to add two songs that I wrote with Mark Ribbler, and uh, I'm going to add some more music by um, Sean Kelly, uh, specifically uh, Get Your Hands Dirty. I'm going to put it on vinyl, so I imagine it will come out in CD as well, because usually... What I release on vinyl, uh, Tom Mathers of Paris Records picks up on uh, CD for Europe and the States, right? So uh, that's going to be uh, those two projects. Plus, I'm working on all my films. That's a uh, ongoing concern. I have tons and tons and tons of footage. Everybody on my films, from Rob Williams to uh, Ian Gillen drinking Jägermeister with me <laughs> backstage, drinking Jägermeister with me backstage in East Berlin, so... Nice, nice. It sounds like it sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy, and 
more more Helix music in the future, and I look forward to this business uh, doing pleasure thing. Uh, because no, I'm going to turn, I'm going to change the title around. I'm going to call it uh, uh, "A Pleasure Doing Business." Oh, nice, nice. All right, that's gonna that's gonna be great. I look forward to that. So hopefully, more stuff in 2021 from you guys. Uh, so just to kind of wrap it all up, uh, everybody, go check out Eat Sleep Rock. I believe you can find it on Amazon and the streaming sites and vinyl at Helix.com. Is that right? It's PlanetHelix.com. PlanetHelix.com. So yeah, go check that out. Like if you're not as familiar with this band, I I honestly believe this record's a great place to start. It's it rocks. It's it's the perfect thing for 2020 in my opinion. It's a good cruising album. Oh hell yeah. Oh hell yeah. yeah it definitely still, is. If you still got a CD player in your car, I might be talking like an antique here, but <laughs> if you still got a CD player in your car, slap it in that tape deck and uh, now that people are listening to vinyl more, slap it on your turntable. You know, like I said, Vinyl's come back big time. Uh, it's got a lot of nice artwork in this, and that was done by uh, Victor Seas, who's been my personal photographer for many years. His father actually filmed uh, uh, Johnny Cash proposing a June car at the London Gardens here in London. And uh, Brent Derner, who used to uh, play guitar for the band, and uh, he's done all our videos and all our artwork. And so those two people are responsible for the artwork. So check it out. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks again, Brian. Uh, I'm your host, The Sly Dog. Keep rocking and rolling. Uh, anything you want to leave the people with before we rock, wrap up? Toby Square, see you around. And most of all, stay sly, Sly Dog. Awesome. Thanks, man. Bye. Rocky. All right.
Thank you for listening to the Sly Dog Music Cast. If you want to know what's going on, follow me on Twitter at Sly Dog Music Cast or Facebook at Sly Dog Music Cast. Thanks again for listening. Peace, love, and music.